Good evening. Man, I'm not going home. That's awesome. Thank you. I do not get treated like this at home. I am delighted to be here. And as Jeannie mentioned, Jarrett and I and Jeannie worked together, gosh, more than 10 years ago. And when I walked into Soul City Church this morning, one of the things that I immediately noticed is it reflected so much of who I know them to be. And I knew that if they ever started a church, it would be radically hospitable and promiscuously inclusive. And those are just fabulous things. So I am just thrilled to be here. I also think it's very cool to be in this part of the city and to think three years ago there was nothing in this building. And now what you guys are doing here, along with hearing about something as simple as this backpack initiative, where I agree with everything that Jeannie said, they're going to help the kids, but it goes so much deeper than that. The work that you're going to do, what you have no idea about tonight after you sign up, is there, there are single moms all over this neighborhood who have no idea that in a couple weeks there's going to be a little extra money in their budget for some more food. Or there's going to be a little extra margin to put away for Christmas gifts. And the gift goes way beyond that day and the backpack and the uniforms. And then, even more important and more exciting than that, you're going to show the city what a group of committed Christ followers do. And instead of being against something, and instead of being angry and saying what people can't do, you're going to show them what they can do in the power of God. And that is no small thing, and I'm just delighted to be here. I'm guessing because you're a part of Soul City that you are excited about being part of a community of faith that can help you in the big picture of what you imagine your life will be. When you think about your vision of your life with God, it looks at things like, what is the career path that I'm going to follow that will be fulfilling for me? What part of the world can I help change? What group of friends can I over time gather around me to be my community? Is there a spouse in my life right now or in my future? Will we have children? What does my home look like? And this whole big picture of your life with God and this community of people that you're doing it with, what I want to talk about tonight is the simple juxtaposition of that big picture with what is the nature of faith and the nature of growth and the nature of reality. And that is that all great things and big pictures with God start in very small places. A number of years ago, before I went on the path that I'm doing right now around leadership and working in churches and with corporations, I was a nurse. I always wanted to be a doctor growing up. I did two years of pre-med. I sat in that chem lab while I watched my friends go play tennis, and I thought, this is not for me. So I switched to nursing. Um, I had a bigger vision beyond that, so as soon as I graduated and started working full-time as a nurse, I also put myself through seminary, met my husband on a blind date during seminary. That's for another sermon. <laughs> but um, when I was a nurse, the first three years, I worked in med surge. Then that next year after that, after I kind of got grounded and was making sure I wasn't going to kill people, which is seriously a very real fear when you're first uh, starting to practice as a nurse, I worked in the emergency room. It's my favorite kind of nursing I ever did. I love that intersection every single night when I went to work of learning and fast pace. It was just tremendous. And in a time when I worked in the emergency room, as you can imagine, there are a few patients, even now after all these years, 
that continues to stand out in my mind. One of them was a little boy named Tad. The last time that I saw Tad in the emergency room, he was about three years old. We had been treating him intermittently for pretty severe asthma. And when it would get really bad, his mom and dad would rush him into the hospital and they'd bring that poor little boy in and he'd be leaning forward and his neck muscles would just be straining to help him try to catch a breath. He would be turning blue in his finger beds and his lips and you could tell by the look on his parents' faces that they were terrified every time they brought him in. And they would drag his five-year-old brother in with them. It was kind of a family affair. And we would get to the point where we knew when Tad came in what tests to run, what treatments to give, and we would often send him up into the intensive care for a couple nights before he went home. Well, one night, late at night, Tad came back in. And that night, we didn't have any doctors on hand that had worked with Tad before. And usually that's a disaster because doctors don't like to listen to nurses. And when you tell them that you know about this patient and what should be done, they dismiss you. We actually had an intern on call that night. Fortunately, he was a pretty good guy. So I was explaining to him Tad's history. He said, great, let's order those regular tests. Let's do the treatments. And in the in-between time, when we were waiting for the test, the lab person to come down and draw the blood and the respiratory therapist to come and give him his treatment. This doctor, because it was kind of a slow night, he had never seen the patient before, he was an intern, brought fresh eyes to this old case. And he decided to do a very rudimentary, fundamental exam. And I remember when he started looking in Tad's eyes and his ears and his nose, I thought, really? We're going to go back to that? All of a sudden, he stopped readjusted his scope, looked a couple more times, and came back and pulled me aside and said, there is a jelly bean stuck in Tad's nose. <laughs> a black jelly bean that is easy to miss. And then when he pulled out the jelly bean and what followed it, because this jelly bean had been in the nose for 18 months. I got to tell you, the smell cleared out the entire emergency room. I'm not making any of this up. And when the doctor turned to tell the parents, I don't think Tad has asthma. He's had a jelly bean up his nose for 18 months. The five-year-old brother starts going like this <laughs> behind the curtain. Oh, yeah. And then, as a result of that evening... Starting that night, the intern made up tiny little signs which you could barely see. And unless you were a staff member, and especially if you were there that night, you wouldn't have even noticed that they were there. And he put them over every single of the 17 beds in our emergency department. And they said this, look, and then little words for black jelly beans. <laughs> look for small little things that might be the key to unlocking something really big. You see, the truth is with small things, especially when it comes to our faith, we underestimate them and overlook them. Much to our peril. And if I'm reading scripture right, over and over and over again, God reminds us that any great work, any great vision, any big picture that he starts always and forever starts with small things. And then in our faith journey, as we're looking ahead to the big picture, we are tripping over every single day places where God wants us to pay attention and to start and really live our lives. So tonight, I want to read to you a passage out of Zechariah that really talks about 
how do we learn to engage with God in the big picture by starting with the small things? Let me give you a little bit of a history as to what was going on in this passage so that we can understand better what Zechariah was talking about. Because what's true is God isn't just working in your life. God is working over the course of history in the arc of human nature in addition to working in your life. And when we start to focus in our faith journey only on our own little lives, we miss the bigger thing about what God is doing. So this is the context of what was happening when the words that we're going to read in just a few minutes from Zechariah got started. Way, way back up here, if you back up on the timeline, was this great, amazing, creative start to the whole universe called creation. And then there was the fall. And then there was the re-engagement of God with his people and the promise to Abraham that there would be a nation that would follow God so well that the rest of the world would know about God because of this small, insignificant little nation on the face of the earth. And that nation went through some really tough times. They believed in the promise, but they got sent to Egypt. They had to languish there for hundreds of years. They got out and they got excited and they thought we're going to the promised land. And God said, oh, newsflash, we're going to spend 40 years in the desert before we get there. They get back to the promised land and there's a lot of obstacles and enemies and it takes a lot of work. But over time, the nation starts flourishing under the kingship of David and Solomon And then after that time of flourishing, where the children of Israel were thinking, this is it. This is the pinnacle and the apex of history. This is what, for hundreds and thousands of years, we have been marching towards. The nation of Babylon takes Israel captive. And that's where this timeline starts. Right when Israel, in its flourishing, thought, this is the end of the story. Again, in that high and low arc that history has followed since the beginning of time. And that our own lives follow. There was, over the period of 597 B.C. to 538 B.C., three separate deportations of Israelites from the land of Israel into captivity in Babylon. And group by group was yanked out of the promised land. The temple was destroyed. The houses were ruined. The nation was a mess. And the promised people of God were bewildered in a foreign land. And if you remember reading in some of the major prophets, uh, one of the prophets comes to the people and says, even though you are disillusioned right now, here's what God says to do while you're in Babylon. It's very counterintuitive. Build a house, get married, have children, plant vineyards, and pray for the welfare of the city. Flourish even when you're not in the vision of where you want to be. And trust that God is at work. Now, we're going to pick up Zechariah right around 520 B.C. So this Babylonian captivity has come to an end, and over the course of these 14 to 16 years, there's a slow return of the Jewish people to Israel. It's good news, and it's bad news. Because when they get back to their promised land, what do you think it looks like? Much like what it looked like here. It was horrible. Everything that they remembered was gone for those that were old enough to remember, And even the temple was completely in ruins and all that was left of it was the outline of the foundation stones outlining where the temple had been. And the only people who were old enough to remember were hoping that in their last few years of life they would begin to be able to live in the vision of God one more time and now they're realizing it's gone. It's all gone. So Zechariah is one of 12 minor prophets 
in the Old Testament, most of whom wrote during this Babylon captivity time and a subsequent time coming right out of it. So here's what Zechariah says that the Lord is saying to his people. You gotta remember that this is a prophet, so God's mad. And when God's mad, he usually asks a prophet to deliver his words, which makes prophets very unpopular. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. How this temple that you can't believe you'll ever see in its glory again is going to get rebuilt is not by your might and not by your power, but by mine. Now, surely he was going to involve the people in doing the work, and that's the beautiful thing about God. He lives at the, in this intersection of the work we do in his spirit. But as a reminder, he's saying, what you see in ruins, I'm going to rebuild by my power. What are you, O mighty mountain? He's referring to what are the obstacles that stand in the way for this to happen. Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone, which is the final rock that goes on any building when it's done to say it is finished. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it, it is finished. There will be rejoicing. This temple will be restored. And there will be a rock on it to finalize that work. And this is also a picture of the rock in the future that will be Jesus. Then the words of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, before we go on, let me move back to the book right in front of uh, Zechariah called Haggai, another one of the minor prophets. This is just a fascinating two-verse passage in chapter 2. And this is, this is all right around page 663 in your Bibles, which I should have told you a few minutes ago. But hey, what, am I, what are you going to do? So here are some more words of the Lord that come. And I think we not only need to learn to live in the content of the words, but also the tone. Because here's, here's what happens when you've been a Christian too long. You start thinking of Jesus like Mr. Rogers. And you start thinking everything he says is so nice and sweet. And he kind of goes around saying, hey, you're beautiful. Don't ever change. Let's do lunch. And then you read the Gospels and you realize that half the time he speaks, it's something that I would wash my kid's mouth out with soap for saying. So just know that before you listen to, again, God's word coming to his people through the mouth of the prophet. So he's got these poor people who have been brought back from captivity, only a few of whom remember the former glory. They're standing around the destroyed temple and the destroyed land. All they can see is the outline of the stone. And instead of being polypositive and giving them a word of encouragement, here's what he says. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? There's only a handful of you here that were even around that could describe what it used to look like. That's not too bad. How does it look to you now? Oh, I'm sure there's a nicer way to say that. Does it not seem like nothing? Okay, stop twisting the knife. We get it. We get it. There's nothing here to build on. But God's doing this for a reason. It's bad enough, and he's taking them down to the depths to really feel it. And then he says, but now be strong. Now, and then he repeats himself, be strong. 
There's a passage that I don't have time to go through right now that this reminds me of in Ephesians 4 where Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. And he says, my prayer for you is that you understand the height, the width, and the depth of the love of God. But you remember what he says? He's praying for them in order for them to do it. I pray that you will have the power to understand the height, the width, and the depth of the love of God. He can't just say, I hope you understand how big it is. He say, it's so big, it's going to rock your mind. You're going to need to sit down and take a nap. I pray that you have the power <laughs> to even begin to comprehend it. Because here's one word that will describe to you how long it's going to take for you to understand it. Eternity. That's a whole timeline that God has for you and me to understand it. This ribbon is driving me crazy. <laughs> so... Zechariah is giving this message to the people from God. And here's just a couple of small things in this passage that is so critical to grab a hold of. How many of you in this room have ever done any kind of remodeling, whether it's a room or starting to build anything from scratch, any kind of remodeling? So John and I have done things from as small as a room to a whole section of our house. And I'm going to tell you right now, I can be very clear with you about what my points of excitement are. My initial point of excitement is the vision. It's sketching out on paper. It's imagining what the room could look like different if we changed this and added this. Sometimes when it's been a bigger project, it's been meeting with an architect who really knows what he's doing and doesn't actually draw on a napkin but paper with little lines on it and then moves things around as I say, oh, I'd like this here and a window here. I get it. That's a point of excitement for me. Another point of excitement is when they frame and drywall and they actually put the walls up and you can start to see it. That's definitely a point of excitement. A third point of excitement when you're remodeling or rebuilding something is when they bring in the paint colors and the carpet samples and the furniture possibilities. I do not have any kind of point of excitement in a rebuild when they bring the plumb line in. I have none. And here's what God is saying. This is a plumb line. This does vertically what a leveler does horizontally. It makes sure that things are even. Horizontally, you put a, lever, a leveler on a wall to make sure it's straight. You use a plumb line simply to do the very simple work of saying the walls are up. Are they straight? Are they going to hold? Also, a little note. You can get this on the plane through TSA. <laughs> I flew to Mexico three months ago. You can't get peanut butter on a plane. They confiscate peanut butter. But this you can take. Don't even get me started on what that conversation was like with TSA. They call it a gel. Okay, that's enough. No more. So what is God trying? Come on. Come on back. What is God trying to tell his people? It's almost a little ludicrous. He kind of turns the knife to say, it's better than you think. You think it's bad looking at it. Does anybody even remember what it looked like in its glory? It's not going to happen without a lot. Then he says, get excited Get excited when Zerubbabel, men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It's crazy. God is reminding his people because they are so discouraged right now. They, talk about the pain of living between the vision and reality, which really is where we live most of our lives. The vision of our life, the vision of a project, the vision of God. God lives most deeply in those in-between spots. But we don't like to do that. And God is reminding them that in this great vision needs to be the humility, the patience, and the perseverance to come back to reality and begin to walk and do the simple steps. Something as simple as a plumb line should bring us hope and joy. And this passage is a deep, 
deep reminder of that. Small things are overlooked, they seem insignificant, and actually what they are is the essence of change. They are the essence of transformation. And they tell us so much about the nature of God that in every single great thing he's ever accomplished, he always starts with small things. And when we overlook him, those things, we are overlooking him in his starting place. The point between reality and vision can get so difficult sometimes, you even give up hope. Hope becomes almost a painful thing in that space. But what God is telling his people is you're going to live the majority of your life there. So I'd like you to learn how to get excited about small things. Dallas Willard has, he's one of the most, he just passed away a few months ago, but he's one of the most preeminent Christian philosophers. Most of what he reads I don't understand, so I have to ask John to translate it for me. But I keep this in my Bible because I think it is so profoundly important for me to understand. I loved it so much the first time I read it, I thought about getting it tattooed on my body, but it's so long and I'm getting so old, I would have to lift my skin up to read it, so that didn't sound attractive at all. (laughs) And for those of you that have tattoos, that day's coming for you. (laughs) No, really, really, it's an eagle, look. So here's what Dallas Willard says. Come on back, come on back. Taking too long. Um, Here's what Dallas Willard says about how you follow God. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation and moment after moment is not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. So what does this mean for you? What day are you waiting for before you will fully commit to trusting God? What thing in your life has to change? Because Dallas is reminding us that God works most deeply, maybe exclusively, in the realm of reality. Wherever it is you want to go, wherever it is you see your life headed, wherever you are today is where you have the only opportunity to live deeply, deeply with God. Jesus knew this very well. I'm going to ask the ushers if they would come up and pass out um, a little bowl that's going to go in front of you. And what I want you to do is I want you to take one of the items in there and put it between your thumb and your forefinger and hold that. When Jesus came to earth and tried for three and a half years to do the best job he possibly could of trying to explain to us what the kingdom of heaven was like or the kingdom of God, you'd think he'd talk mostly about really, really big things that blew your mind. He doesn't do that. The majority of what Jesus talked about was the power of small things. I'm passing around a little mustard seed. Now, one of the volunteers here this morning, very graciously, when she saw them, offered to put a a few of them in a baggie for each of you to take home. And I said, that's way too much work. Um, There's no way. So you're going to have to take care of this yourself. You're going to lose this before you get to your car or you walk home. I can guarantee that. So tonight or tomorrow when you go to the grocery store, buy a bottle of mustard seed. Take them home, put them in a little bowl, and when you go out to work or to school every morning, just put your finger in that little bowl and roll one around in between your thumb and your forefinger and just remember. You see, the truth is, when Jesus came to earth, the Pharisees religiously had set the bar really, really high. And Jesus came in going, oh, no, 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 no. The bar's so low, it's embarrassing. In fact, let me tell you that this is all the faith that you need. 
What? That doesn't make sense. So John and I have a really good friend, somebody that we care a lot about, and literally for nine years, John and I have been in relationship with this person and praying for this person who has gone farther and farther and farther away from God in some really destructive and difficult ways. Very painful. We've been praying for this person off and on. And six weeks ago, we got a phone call. And she told us, I'm back. Long story, I don't have time to go into it, but the faith is there. It's it's strong, but here's what she said to me. She, put her, she had no seed. She put her finger, fingers together like this, and she said, I just need to let you know I have this much faith. To which I said, that's fabulous, because that's Jesus said all you need. You just need this much faith. Now, here's the deal. Hold your finger and your, your thumb and your forefinger up. When you put a mustard seed between your faith, how much light can you see between your fingers? None. If you can see some, you're not holding. It's probably on the floor now. None. You can see no light there. It's a little, tiny, tiny thing that God is asking you to do to bring to him. And sometimes when we compare our faith to other people, here's the, here's the danger of comparison. And if I had time, I'd do a sermon on John 21, but I don't. But read John 21 about how Jesus feels about us comparing ourselves to each other. When you compare yourself to somebody else, you will always compare your insides to their outsides. And you will misjudge what their outsides really mean, and you will always feel like you're, you don't measure up. It's not true. You bring... You want to pray for 10 minutes a day and you only pray six seconds? That's all you needed today, six seconds. Celebrate the heck out of it. What's that small thing for you? Is it the way you behave at work? Is it in a relationship you have? What is some little tiny step where God is saying, if you meet me in reality today in this small tiny way, I will not only help you, I will remind you that there is the germ of greatness in the smallest of things. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the power of God. It is the nature of reality and truth and the nature of our faith. What's true about people that have the eyes of faith is they know that there's a world of difference between little and nothing. And all God is asking you to do is to live in reality, not where you think you should be, not envisioning where you want to be, but where you are today. Mad at him, distant from him, ignoring him, whatever it is, that's your starting point. I live in the Silicon Valley, and what's fascinating is we live in a world of entrepreneurs out there. Everybody's in a startup business. And people who are even moderately successful, I find fascinating that every single one of them, they don't want to talk about what they're doing right now and how successful they are. These entrepreneurs always want to go back to where they started, how tough it was, and how little they knew when they got started, and how little tiny things done over and over again begin to aggregate and magnetize towards each other to build into tipping point. I went to talk to them about a project I was working on, and what I left was with was a framework for my faith. One of the guys said, here's what I did with every company I started. Here's where I started. I knew nothing. And I said, oh, I can do that all day. I am so good at that. I knew nothing. I tried everything. And whatever stuck, I built on. I think that's what Jesus did with the disciples. I think that's what he did for three and a half years. We jump to the end of people's stories, even in scripture. We look at Peter and we think, man, he wrote two books at the end of the Bible. Jesus picked him out of all the disciples. He preached at Pentecost. He started the church. Peter was a major screw up, and that's just the truth. 
From a leadership development perspective, if you look at the 12 disciples and throw Judas out, Peter does not rise to the cream of the crop to say, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. When Jesus says that, I'm thinking, not Peter. Do you remember how many times he stuck his foot in his mouth, cut off people's appendages, couldn't stay up on the water? What do you know that I don't know because I'm not seeing it? And God said, that's good enough. That's all I need, which gives us great hope. In Acts chapter 4 or 6, when Peter preached to the thousands of people, do you remember what the description of him was? He was an unschooled, ordinary man who had been with Jesus. Because Jesus says, not only do I start with little things, that's where I do all my best work. I only work in small things. And then over time, because of the nature of God, they aggregate to each other. They can't help but stick it on each other. And then they start to build momentum and tipping point and movements. No one who's accomplished anything great in their work or in their life can despise the day of small things because they know that's where it starts. So what is it for you? I really hope this week you will get a little bowl of mustard seeds, visually to look at them, tactically to feel them, and to get that muscle memory inside your brain to say this conversation, this moment of silence, this walk across the street, all of it can be alive with the kingdom of God if I will let it count. And then I think what we need to remember is the rest of the story. Pretty profound here. Because as soon as Zechariah is done, in about 100 years of the temple being rebuilt and Israel moving to restoration of its glory, it all goes bad again. And there again are those arcs and rhythms in history and in our lives where God is at work. In 400 BC, every piece of our Old Testament was done being written. For 400 years, there was no writing that then made it into the canon of Scripture. Intertestamental period is what it was called, and scholars of that era use one word to describe it. Silence. Ever had God be silent in your life? Want to talk about 400 years of it? And what came at the end of 400 years of silence and darkness, once again, was a small thing. A little baby in an incredibly obscure town, in a lowly manger, a point of light that went from a small thing to an infinitely widening point of light that has shed light on the whole world. And it's in that small thing that it started. So my prayer for all of us, myself so deeply included, is that we would begin to live, not just tomorrow or tonight, but more deeply for the rest of our lives in this deep awareness of I can follow God only in reality and I can start only where I am and to know that his power is not in the big things, but it's in the germ of the small seed. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the counterintuitive and upside-down thinking that something so small is so important. It gives us such hope for our lives, even tonight when we go home. Our pajamas, whatever we're going to do before we go to bed tonight, 
what we eat and what we drink and the conversations that we have in our jobs and our mind and our hearts and our souls are all these little things that you do a universe of work in. So I pray with the faith of a mustard seed that we would see the eternal God in the smallest of seeds that then grows roots and branches and becomes a firm thing in this world. In Christ's name, amen.